Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sadiq Hamid, a senior research assistant at the University of Oxford and the author of Sufis, Salafis, and Islamists, The Contested Grounds of British Islamic Activism, published by Ivy Torres in 2016. In Sufis, Salafis, and Islamists, Dr. Hamid explores the contours of Islamic activism, and indeed the meaning of this key term in the context of the UK. Despite this specific focus, however, he also gives attention to transnational implications, especially insofar as British Muslims represent a variety of ethnic backgrounds and political influences. Hamid gives meticulous attention to the social and political histories of the groups he studies including Hezbo Tahrir, Young Muslims, and many others. As the title suggests, the author also surveys groups with explicit connections to Sufism and draws connections between Western streams of Sufism, such as those inspired by Hamza Youssef, Timothy Winter, and Nu Hamim Keller. Among Hamid's many strengths in his erudite work, is his ability to successfully locate uniquely British experiences of Islam within the cacophony of voices that comprise the social makeup of what it means to be British and Muslim. Given the extensive sources that Hamid explores, combined with the timely questions he poses, the monograph will likely attract interest from scholars across disciplines, ranging from history and religious studies to political science and sociology as well as journalists of many stripes. Without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Sadiq Hamid. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Sadiq. So much, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be here with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book, Sufi Salafis and Islamists. And here at New Books in Islamic Studies, before we get into the content of the book, we like to ask our authors a little bit about themselves. So. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about your educational background and any influential mentors you might have had in the process? Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I actually entered um, academia relatively late in life, in my early 30s, um, because prior to that, I I trained in the social sciences and I trained specifically in youth and community development. So um, after my undergraduate studies, I uh, worked professionally uh, with young people for, for just over a decade, and uh, towards the end of that, I, I was pursuing a, uh, a master's in uh, Islamic studies, and it was really there I uh, kind of made a decision to switch careers, and I transitioned into academia and uh, enrolled on a doctoral program uh, at the University of Chester here in the UK, part-time, and I completed that for about six years and uh, my PhD is in religious studies but I've kind of focused in on Islamic studies and uh, my uh, area of uh, interest which is uh, uh, Muslim religious identity formation and um, as it relates to uh, the work of uh, various Islamic trends that have uh, helped shape um, religious identity and politics and, and inter-Muslim politics here in the UK over the last three, three decades or so. Um, I've had a number of academic influences, but um, specifically for this subject area, it is my um, ex, uh, 
supervisor, really, Professor Ron Jeeves, who has been a great influence. Um, and I chose to do my PhD under him because he had um, actually produced a similar study in his own doctoral work, uh, uh, which looked at the sectarian trends within British Islam. And that was uh, uh, published in the in the mid 90s. So uh, I guess yeah he's 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 been a great influence and he did um he kind of uh, yeah because of his work I was attracted to go and, and and do my PhD with him and so given your eclectic background and having this sort of different career trajectory for a while were there any kind of significant intellectual moments or books that you read that shaped you in a way that might you know not be sort of the typical story of someone who goes into academia like straight through high school and stays you know like a lot of people yeah sure uh yeah i mean um even though i was uh, kind of working uh professionally youth in community development uh, i i always had a an ongoing interest in, in islamic studies uh, generally contemporary islam more more so than uh, textual studies um so uh, i had a, i always i always um was reading something, you know, uh, to do with Islam and, and, and Muslims in Britain or, or something of, of that nature. Um, and yeah, I think there was a couple of books that really stood out for the, the study of Islam in Britain, which was, I guess, in the 1990s. Um, it was a relatively new uh, field. And for me, uh, one book that really um, that did uh, strike me as a good study uh, was uh, Islamic Britain written by uh, Philip Lewis and that was uh, quite a significant work for its time uh, although it was a case study of a particular Muslim community in in Bradford in, in uh, northern uh, Britain um, the author kind of analysis and exploration did extrapolate out to to many of the experiences of Muslims living across the UK. So that was a, it's actually a very well-known study and it's actually a standard text in the field. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that book impressed me. I, I was at the time, you know, um, uh, I guess in my, in my early 20s and I thought, wow, this, uh, somebody who's not a Muslim uh, can know so much about Muslim communities. It, for me at that time, it was like, a, you know, it was, it was new as, as a non-academic. I didn't really know many non-Muslims who had that level of intimate knowledge an understanding of the the various dimensions of of the Muslim experience, and that really impressed me. So I guess at the back of my mind, um, I thought, wow, you know, I, you know, I'd like to do something like this perhaps one day. And and so finally, before we we jump right into the book, what was there any kind of particular moment or a series of moments that shaped your interest in in the topic that you look at in the book? Yeah, sure. Uh, as I said, I mean, uh, I, the my my supervisor's work was one of the reasons, but actually, um, as I've stated in the in the in the beginning of my book, uh, um, it was actually a friend of mine, a journalist, uh, quite well known British Muslim journalist, Faisal Bodhi, who uh, again, uh, I think it was in 1993. He, uh, we were both students at the time, uh, university students, and he. Um, he wrote an article for the uh, the university student uh, Islamic Society newsletter. Uh, it was a, it, it was like a it, it was a bit of a satire on the state of Islamic activism on university campuses across the UK. And uh, his his article was called "The Players," and it was a kind of neat summary and uh, comparison between Sufi groups, Salafi groups, uh, well, predict specifically really Salafi groups and uh, the Islamist groups on campus who were vying with one another for the attention of, of new uh, new st you know, undergraduate students on campus. And uh, I, I, that struck me at the time was very perceptive. And I guess that was at the back of my mind. It planted a seed. And um, the other influence actually was my own involvement in uh, Islamic, uh, various Islamic organizations uh, during the 1990s up to the early 2000s. Um, I've, I've worked and got to know a lot of the the main, um, if you like, the activists and leaders, uh, people who I've 
um, mentioned in the book. Uh, and, and that really, that, uh, if you like, practitioner experience, it did indirectly feed into my formal academic study. So, yeah, I, I, I've kind of, I've got that kind of personal history as well as the formal academic um, study, which combined together to uh, prompt me to do this study. And, and for me, really, it was trying to, um, I guess writing this was it was really an attempt for me post post uh, uh, my involvement to understand what actually happened during the 1990s because I keep going back to the 1990s as being the defining decade for second generation uh, British Muslims to uh, come to terms with the fact of their Muslimness. So those people who chose to identify as uh, practicing Muslims, those people who started to take their religion seriously and get involved in religious activism and, and try to, if you like, Islamize their, their peers and their communities. Um, I mean, this is one of my arguments. The 1990s was the defining decade. Obviously, as you're going through it, you know, you're, you're and as a younger person, you know, you're just trying to make sense of it. Um, and you're in many ways heavily committed to a particular organization or a particular outlook and it's difficult to take that objective kind of standpoint because you're so immersed in the subject area and for me um, during the early 2000s I, I thought well you know what a lot of us went through this I mean literally thousands of people went through Islamic organizations during the, the 90s and, and um, it would be good to do a study really try to make sense of it analyze it objectively and I guess that fed into my decision to um, to to do this as a PhD. So related to the next thing I want to ask you is that, you know, one of the things that you do in, in the book that I found really helpful is you look at these terms like Salafi and Islamist and then look at the different groups and, you know, there's certain commonalities, but of course these groups also define themselves in unique ways. And so I'd like to get into the terminology in, in a moment, but could you first say a little bit about your, your title and you use the term Islamic activism. And so like, what, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, so the, the title, the, the, the main three terms, Sufi, Salafis and Islamists, is um, it's a deliberate uh, attempt to, to catch people's attention, obviously, uh, given that those three terms, particularly Salafis and Islamists in, in recent years, uh, have entered the the mainstream public imagination, I guess, through uh, the ongoing period that we are all experiencing in terms of anxieties and fears around um, terrorism, religious radicalization, and so on. Uh, and so, you know, uh, those t those particular terminologies are in currency in a way which have mainstreamed them. But what I found was that not many people actually understood what, what they meant. You know, Islamist is often uh, interchanged for uh, radical, militant, fundamentalist, jihadist, you know, uh, sympathizer of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And, and, and I think that slippage, I think, is, is unhelpful, especially certainly in the public sphere where I think we really need to be careful about what we mean. And, and, and sometimes you underestimate the impact of words and you know, um, I think so for me, you know, I wanted to try to, if you like, I mean, this is what we do as educators, obviously, as you know, try to explain and, and, and contextualize what these terms mean. And uh, the, the subtitle, the contested ground of British Islamic activism is obviously a reference to the competitive nature of the different Islamic tendencies and methodologies that Sufis, Salafis, and Islamists represent because they are distinct. They are, I mean, obviously they are, they are all Muslim groupings, uh, but they are quite. They have um, distinct characteristics and approaches to what they mean by Islam, and it, so it's about unpacking that. And so, what about this idea of British Islamic activism? If we're thinking about this term Islamic activism as something that could be understood in a global context, what what would you say particularly shapes the, the British context, broadly speaking? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, as you know, um, the Islam uh, historically and, and certainly 
uh, in the contemporary world that we live in uh, is inflected by the culture, uh, the dominant culture that it, it resides in. So here in the West, uh, in, in North America, in, 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 in Europe and, and here in the UK, we have a, um, an encultured version of the faith in the, in, to, the, to the extent that people identify an American Islam or Muslim Americans. Uh, British Islam is, is a product of the Muslims who are born or have, have grown up in Britain and have, um, who identify themselves as culturally British, but also, uh, you know, attached to their faith. And, and it's, an, it's an attempt at reconciliation, I guess. The, the kind of hybridized uh, approach, which I think uh, most Muslims in Britain would, would I mean, it's an interesting internal kind of uh, debate that is is ongoing. I mean, some people say, well, look, there's no, you know, Muslims shouldn't be, you know, trying to develop this project of a, uh, a British Islam. There is only one Islam, and that is, you know, one that people as, you know, aspire to practice this, a universal, some, somehow deculturalized, free-floating Islam that's out there that we're all trying to strive towards. And there's, you know, trying to uh, give it a, um, prefacing it with a, uh, a national uh, kind of flavor doesn't make any sense. And, and that's obviously, uh, that's a political position. It's a theological position for some. But most mis Muslims in Britain do identify with, with, the, with, with the country that they're living in. And um, they recognize that they have internalized many of uh, what, what, you know, many of the cultural facets of being a British person. And that in itself is an interesting and longer conversation. But when it comes to their activism, um, it's really about uh, a, a specific, I mean, I've, I've, there are now, interestingly, there are um, different kinds of activism that is, uh, done by Muslims in, in Britain, but I've kind of, uh, kind of, if you like, tried to lay the, lay the, the larger uh, context of that in the book by talking about how those Muslims who were very publicly active, uh, going, getting involved in their communities and wider societies, and, and, and um, they were people really from religious backgrounds. And so the, the activism that they were participating in and advocating had it was influenced by their inter particular interpretation of Islam. And the activism, I mean, what were they actually trying to do? What, 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 they were trying to basically um, transmit their religious values to uh, younger people, to their peers, and also reach out to uh, their fellow non-Muslim uh, citizens, uh, their friends, neighbors, colleagues, etc. So it's 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 it, that's the kind of missionary aspect of it, if you like, proselytizing to the wider society. And and some for some some of these activists, there is a hope that you know that they would like to share and spread Islam to the whole of the UK, and in the hopes that. Uh, you know, the people of Britain would accept Islam. I guess for some people that was a primary objective, for some people it was a secondary objective. But what all of these groups had in common was the the, uh, the agreement around the maintenance and the fortification of their Islam in their personal and collective lives. And hence, the activists were all trying to do the same thing in that way. They were trying to, they were trying to, um, strengthen their sense of self and their Islam and, and um, uh, at the same time it was a personal but also a public act. The personal was about the, the, the individuals developing the individual relationship with God, um, passing these families these, these values on to their families, but also trying to reach out to what they would consider lapsed Muslims in their localities and their communities. So we know, um, uh, you know, this is this is uh, this is a fact nowadays that many Muslims in minority contexts, and it's not just in minority contexts. We see this in Muslim majority contexts in the world, in in in, in as well. We see uh, the the younger people who are um, who are who express less of an interest in their faith, um, their and, and measuring religiosity in, in things like prayers. Pray, how many, if they pray at all, if, if they pray five times a day, if they attend the mosque, 
the Friday prayers, and so on. I mean, those kind of markers, I mean, those kind of measurements, you know, what we are seeing is a gradual decline in um, religious practice in the second and third generations. I know it's, it's very similar in the, in the US, but here in the UK, it's been on a gradual decline. And so these activist groups' primary objective were trying to reverse that, uh, that general trend of decreased religiosity, and they would argue increased secularity. And really what we're witnessing most recently is, is an increase in, in, in atheism as well. So what about in terms of de- basic demographics and percentages? How many, how many Muslims are there in Britain to help our, our listeners understand the context? Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of numbers, um, it's an always imprecise thing because, I mean, in the UK, we have a national census uh, that takes place every 10 years. So the last on the last count in 2011, there was approximately two, 2.7 million Muslims recorded through the census data. Now that, you know, we are getting on seven years uh, after that. So, um you know, most most uh, most people would recognise. I think that that 2.7 million is is a dated figure now, and we have. I would people people say really it would be closer to three million, if not more than three million Muslims, in the UK, and um, in terms of the, the demog- further specific breakdowns, we the, the the UK Muslim population is predominantly South Asian. That is to say from mainly Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, and India. And so we then also have Muslims from everywhere else as well, uh, from the Middle East, from uh, Africa, from Southeast Asia, and so on. But um, if you look at the, uh, the, if you you like, the um, breakdown uh, geographically, in the UK we have about, I mean, in the London has the single most concentrated Muslim community, which is well over a million, and then Muslim communities are condensed uh, in in the Midlands. Uh, we have uh, we have the original Birmingham. <laughs> here, here, we there's a large community in in Birmingham and in uh, middle of the country, and then the communities are quite densely populated in the northwest of, of the country, in the major cities of Manchester, Bradford, uh, and so on. And then we have uh, significant communities in Scotland as well, and a very small community in Northern Ireland. As you know, England is a, the UK is a very small island compared to the US, but I think, um, I mean, historically, the communities arrived in, 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 in significant, significant numbers in the, in the, in the early 60s. And it's it's continued to grow, um, almost doubling in the last ten years, actually. Um, so if you look at the figures for 2001 census and you look figures for 2011, there's it's been a, a huge increase, actually. It's over more than a million people, and um, the community is very it is very uh, diverse in the cosmopolitan areas like London and Birmingham and Manchester, but in the northwest of the country, it's 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 uh, less ethnically diverse it's mainly the uh, the south asian bangladeshi indian pakistanis who make up most of the muslim communities and so connecting this to the different groups that you studied and who belongs to which groups and that sort of thing you you have a very helpful glossary at the beginning of the book that identifies the various acronyms you use to help the reader keep track of the many groups you look at and so what would you say is like one of the most significant groups that you looked at in your study? Uh, well, again, because of the predominantly South Asian complexion, I guess uh, you could say the the Muslims uh, with their ethnicity, there is a, there is a um, kind of a historical accompanying theological slash sectarian. Um, uh, affiliation. So may, most Muslims from South Asia would come from a um, Diobandi or Brailwi theological kind of uh, heritage. If and and for for um, for listeners who aren't aware, I mean these are specific uh, 
late 18th century, early 19th century theological kind of tendencies, which kind of arose in the Indian subcontinent. And then there were ways of, there was a, in terms of hermeneutics towards the tradition and this, the scriptural sources, but also in its relationship to um, in, uh, the uh, England as an occupying colonial force. So the Adiobandis were in specifically a response to uh, the the English uh, colonial powers and so on and I give a little bit of background around that so you know um, they're they they're kind of uh, ethno sectarian ways of kind of organizing themselves and so in the UK um, even though they are arguably the largest um, theological traditions I have I made a point that. Given their relative lack of sophistication um, and lack of interest amongst young people during the um, the early phases of my study, and I be actually began in the mid '80s, my argument is that despite the numerical um, uh, kind of density of the the the, the Diobandi and Brailvi oriented Muslims, it was actually the Islamist reformists tendencies that really kind of had it were, were switched on to what was going on in the second generation and they were the first to become organized and to 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 make a uh, to try to engage second generation uh, muslim youth in a way that the diobandis and brailvis were uh, they were not equipped to do basically essentially they were they they didn't have the the, the tools the communication skills or or frankly speaking, the interest to engage their young people. Um, and that caused frictions and, and interesting kind of tensions between young people who were moving away from the Diobandi Braille influence. Um, also, for those non-South Asian uh, Muslims from different tendencies, we also had other 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 ideas floating around. So the the Salafi you know, during the 1980s, the Salafi influence was starting to also uh, take root, and we saw our organized efforts to uh, to promote that particular view. And that is, I mean, I I basically looked at the Islamists and the Salafis as the most active group, most organized groups amongst second generation British Muslims in the mid 80s. Now, things in the 1990s started to become a bit more complicated and a bit more interesting and that's where I argue that uh, we had the emergence of um, a, a an activist form of uh, Sufism uh, and so I use these these labels as, as, as ways of understanding this very competitive relational kind of dynamic that was taking place to essentially uh, uh, influence uh, hearts and the minds of, uh, of, of young people from Muslim backgrounds and that for me, the, I make this point because if the Sufis and the Salafis and the Islamists had not done what they were doing, it's unlikely that we would have had the very complex Islamic landscape that we have today, because today is a direct legacy of what happened in the 1980s and the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the the study that you look at in the context of the UK in particular, how, how do you... How do you define Salafi and Islamist? Because, you know, as, as you know, and a lot of people assume these are kind of interchangeable terms, and of course they're not. And so what what would you want our listeners to know in particular about how these terms are different? Sure. Uh, I, I mean, um, academics know well that uh, when it comes to definitions, I mean, it's, it's always a um, it's contested <laughs> We we love to argue argue the finer points of uh, of uh, how we characterize different types of religious formation and and identity and so um, yeah I mean there's different ways of uh, scholars have uh, tried to uh, distinguish between different types of Muslim religiosity so uh, for me uh, interestingly um, when I've spoken to uh, I've had a different reaction when I've spoken to Muslim audiences and non-Muslim audiences. So non-Muslim audiences have been quite open, and I guess because they have they don't have necessarily the the background knowledge to 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 question. But 
when I'm amongst Muslims, they say, well, look, why are you using this? Why are you using these terms, Islamist and, and Salafi? You know, who even uses that term? And we, you know, and so, so people who would, would be described as, as Islamists have said to me, why are you using that term? And I say, well, you know, first of all, they are academic labels. They are ways of understanding different types of religiosity. But also in the UK specifically, you know, we've we've had a, a very kind of intense uh, scrutiny uh, and pressure really applied on politically active Muslims over the last 10 years because of the, the, the securitized nature of uh, the discussion. But um, Islamists, I mean, uh, it's it's one of those. It's a very highly controversial term and 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 a catch-all term that for some people uh, would mean any any act any politically active Muslim. But that really isn't enough. Um, I mean, Islamism is it's a very broad mosque, if you like, of uh, different tendencies, some moderate and some more extreme, and and. Essentially, they are people who believe that um, their faith has a very important influence in how uh, they sh shape uh, their private and their public life. And, and Islamists are very much interested in, in shaping the public, uh, the public sphere in, in, the, in, in the realms of uh, politics, economics, and so on. And historically, the, the Islamist... Um, People who kind of uh, shaped it intellectually, the, the reformers and the revivalists of, of particularly the 19th century and the early 20th century were very much interested in capturing state power and responding to colonialism. So, you know, unfortunately, I guess in the last 10 to 15 years and uh, certainly in the UK, the term Islamist has become uh, very much discredited and it's it's almost actually... It's become a term of abuse. So if anybody um, is, in a, is, is, is assertive politically, uh, they're often dismissed as being an Islamist and without any kind of real regard. But what is it? What did this person want? You know, um, so, I mean, I've used it as a, as, as a uh, category to describe the different type of reformist tr trends that were influenced by 19th century and early 20th century ideologues. Uh, you know, genealogically linked to the thinkers that emerged from the uh, Ikhwan al-Muslimun, the Muslim Brotherhood movement, and the Jamaat Islami movement uh, in the in the Indian subcontinent. Um, I think specialists will know that these two movements are the the, the biggest Islamic movements um, in 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 the Muslim world. And they've exercised a, a very large influence over immigrant Muslim communities in the West as well. A lot of the activist, um, uh, politically active and visible Muslim organizations in Europe, in the UK and in the US were laid by people who were associated with the Muslim Brotherhood and the Jamaat Islami organization. So that's what I mean by Islamist. Salafis are, again, it's a, it's a theological um, trend which again has a particular genealogy that couldn't be traced to the uh the wahhabi movement and abdul even up the wahhab and what was what was going on in the arabian peninsula in the 18th centuries and 19th centuries and really coming up to the 20th century and uh the particular tendency that uh claims to want to purify islam of its uh historical accretions and deviations and going back to uh, the what they claim is going back to the Quran and the hadith in an unmediated way so that's that's a, it's a, it's a it's a methodological approach but it also kind of privileges a particular uh, theological uh, perspective as well and obviously the salafi slash wahhabi uh, tendency again has has exercised a ma massive influence globally in the last 20, 30, perhaps 40 years, and has shaped the religiosity of, of many Muslims. And, and this is a thing for me, why, I mean, why the subtitle of the book is called Contested Ground is because it's very much an ongoing contest between Islamists, Salafis, and Sufis. I mean, they, these three tendencies are paradigms in the, for, for understanding how Muslims uh, 
can make claims in the public sphere and 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 make claims around religious authority religious authenticity and um how the muslim condition in their particular uh, localities can be uh, addressed and uh, you know essentially i mean it's 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 defined in the language of problems and solutions you know they will you know, activists talk about you know uh, improving the condition of the muslims you know bringing islam uh, back you know bringing the greatness of islam back and giving dawah and so on and so on it, it's it's they're all messages around reform revival and restoring the honor and the pride of Muslims, and that's basically what I'm. What I try to do is to unpack what they, what, what do these activists actually mean when they use this language themselves, and what is it that they're actually trying to achieve in the UK? Well, so so on this point of defining Salafis and Islamists, of course, the other topic in your title is Sufis, and there's this popular idea that Sufis are quietists and apolitical. And so how do you how do you contextualize Sufism in the context of your study and how do they how do they fit into this broader picture of activism? Uh, that's right. I mean, um, again, going back to the particular British experience, we, as I said, uh, had the importation of South Asian varieties of Islamic religiosity and, and the dominant um if you like, expression is both among the Diobandis and the Brailevis is is a traditional, if you like, uh, Sufism, and here we mean the kind of a subscription to the historical tariqas or taruk, the the Sufi orders that were kind of uh, strong uh, and, and consistent and visible uh, across the centuries, really, and I'm. Thinking here of the Naqshbandi orders, the Chishtiya, uh, the Qadris, uh, the Shadalis, and so on. I mean, these, you know, the Su- Sufism, you know, the the, the Sufi path. They, those people who have chosen the, if you like, um, the, or chosen to emphasize, um, if you like, the spiritual dimension of Islam. Um, those people who um, privilege a relationship. Uh, with their sheikh, their teacher, as being guides to getting closer to God, um, you know those people who emphasize particular act, ritual ritual performances which bring them closer to God, and so on. Um, so you know, if you like classical Sufism as it, it is conceived, that type of uh, understanding was also um, trans traveled uh, to the to the UK with the nineteen sixties generation, um, and so. The thing is, though, uh, that type of religiosity, it became um, largely irrelevant to the second generation who had been born in the UK in the 1970s or, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. People who came of age and, you know, were looking into their religion or, or, or had received religious instruction in their local mosques, it would have given the demographics which I mentioned before it would have would have been a particular Brailvi or Diobandi interpretation of Islam and often with it a uh, kind of aspects of their ethnic Sufism if you like which was seen as actually irrelevant and actually almost embarrassing so Sufism really for most of the 80s and early 90s was irrelevant it was seen as as something that are you know uh, our parents did, which we don't really quite understand, and actually, you know, so especially when it came to uh, quite folkloric as- uh, things like um, um, the the reverence for the, the 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 saint, the peer, or the um, certain types of religious practices that were done on special occasions, you know, uh, these were all these were all things which you know a lot of educated second generation Muslims didn't understand and, and didn't really relate to at all. And it was one of the reasons why they felt I mean Islam didn't have anything for them. And and you see, this the, I mean this is one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but um because it didn't didn't have anything to say to younger people growing up in a in a secular, predominantly secular, culturally Christian society where they were minorities. You know, their religion was one 
aspect of their identity. And this is where the activist groups, you know, they explain this situation as being a factor for the the kind of um, the gradual turning away from religion. So their their, their argument was that look, and in 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 their language, they would say, look, the religion that your parents taught you isn't proper Islam. You know, it's not the true Islam. Islam is a way of life. Islam is comprehensive. Islam is much more than just praying five times a day and, and fasting in the month of Ramadan. Islam has something to say uh, about everything in, in, in your life and who you are and what you do, being both private and public. And it has something to offer to the wider society. And so it's a it's a particular it's a particular worldview. And, and, and this for younger people was was um, for some people who were interested it was something new and different and it kind of uh, drew them back and that's that's the opening that the the islamic groups had um uh, it, it enabled them uh, to to pick to pick apart the, the 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 particular understanding of islam that they had and, and because a lot of them were coming from uh, sufi backgrounds the sufi that particular form of sufism was discredited now what i argue late in the in in the in uh, the 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 Sufi the Sufis that I uh, discuss are, if you like, um, part of a, a part of a trend which arguably never really went anywhere. It not it wasn't that it was invisible. It's always been part of uh, historical Sufism, if you like. Um, and obviously, we you know I'm I'm, make, I'm making generalizations because obviously all of these religious uh, traditions are very, are vast, but uh, to to make it um, a viable kind of uh, uh, subject for study, I had to kind of narrow the terms. So when I'm talking, I, I'm talking about Sufis. I'm talking about kind of break with the tra- traditional historical Sufism that I just described. The the Sufism that emerged in the 1990s among second generation Muslims was really as a result of ongoing efforts by a number of individuals uh, and networks that were already in place it wasn't some it wasn't something that was kind of like um you know a group of people got together and say yeah yeah we got it we we have to you know invent some new form of religion or a tactic that to to get the youth back to islam it's always it's always been there that would be their argument it's always it was always part of the historical sufi tradition but what distinguished this um this this approach to Sufism, I guess, was the uh, the public face of particular scholars and the scholarly voices and the and the work that these individuals had on the second generation. Here, I'm thinking of, and some I'm sure a lot of the the listeners will be familiar with the name of Sheikh Hamza Yusuf Hansen uh, from the Zaytuna uh, College in in. Um, California, and uh, he is an individual. Has ha, although he's an American Muslim, Sheikh, he actually exercised a huge influence here in the UK in the ni- in the mid nineteen nineteen nineties, and that was only possible because of the emerging transatlantic network that was taking place. And this is what I call the traditional Islam network or the Anglo-American tradition islam network it was basically these indi- these people who were actually friends and, and, and hamza yusuf is is a, is a well-known convert he, he converted to islam uh in 1990 uh, 1977 and it's interesting he, it was the same year uh, as uh his his uh here in the uk sheikh abdul hakim murad or otherwise known as the cambridge professor tim winters who is arguably the UK's most famous uh, English Muslim, but it's also the same year that uh, Sheikh Nur Keller, Nur Hamin Keller, who is uh, based in Jordan, and also the year that uh, Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam, converted. So, um, and also I believe uh, Imam Ham, uh, Imam um, Zaid Shakir as well. So I don't know what the significance here of this. 1977 but these these are currently very you know some of the most well-known converts uh, personalities we have in in the english-speaking world and and these these people are our friends i think it it was 
it's a network relationship that kind of built upon their prior friendships that were developed and and the working relationship that, that they had but it was basically British Muslim activists here in the UK who started to bring over the uh, and, and bring together the converts uh, and um, basically I've, I've, I've pinpointed it to 1995 as being that transition that landmark year if you like where uh, certainly Hamza Yusuf uh, was kind of introduced to the British Muslim community and uh, he kind of like uh, you know, he, he was a breath of fresh air in the words of many activists at the time. He was, uh, he kind of, he, uh, how can I say, he wowed people. I mean, he, people held, was just like, were taken aback by his, uh, his knowledge, not only of the tra traditional Islamic sciences, his Arabic was flawless. I mean, people used to say that his Arabic was better than the Arabs, but he had so much knowledge of the Quran and the Hadith. But also he was um, very culturally kind of switched on to the ideas and the, the kind of like tastes uh, of, of, of people, uh, modern, you know, you know uh, second generation Muslims. And, and, and so, I, you know, I, I've argued that he had that influence um, as, as a, as, as a uh, particularly as a convert figure. You know, he became a hero to many people. But what he also, coming from a Sufi background, that kind of uh, unsettled the other groupings. So the Islamists at first were not sure how to take him, you know, and the Salafis were very suspicious of him. And uh, essentially, he and Abdul Hakim Murad and Nuh Keller and the, the activists in the UK and in, in the US, they essentially uh, uh, were were the 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 figureheads if you like of this of this uh, transition that took place where scholarly sufis were if you like repopularizing sufism as a as an orientation within islam and and essentially i mean the long story short uh sufism was was put back if you like back into the mainstream back into it was i mean for some people people accuse sufism of being unorthodox of it you know it being kind of tainted by culture and so on but what they did was to able to recenter it as being part of the islamic tradition and actually part of orthodoxy and that really took the salafis uh off guard because they had always accused sufis of being somehow a deviant uh, heterodox tendency within islam historically yeah, so I, that's it's really fascinating. The 1977 that was uh, that was news news to me as well. Now, me and many other listeners are going to want to look into that, see what was going on in that year. And so you you mentioned this idea of this Anglo American traditional Islam network, and in particular Hamza Youssef and Tim Winter, Abdul Hakim Murad. What what significance do you think it is that these are white converts? sort of having this influence on Muslim contexts that primarily consists of non-white converts? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I think there's a, there's a number of things there. Um, I think I'd begin by saying with, with uh, something, by saying something, I guess, might, that might make some people feel uncomfortable, but the reality is, and, and other, other academics have written about this, is, is the idea of um, the white savior kind of complex for, for, for Muslims, particularly um, South Asian background and perhaps Arab background. You know, it was, the, it was really um, this, this idea of um, a, somebody from the West embracing, quote unquote, our religion as being some kind of a validating kind of effect. I guess I'd, I'd, I'd begin by saying that. And certainly somebody who was white, you know, the dominant culture, converting to Islam was somehow seen as, you know, honoring Islam and, and, and proving the, the, the truthfulness of Islam. So this is a psychological kind of uh, response uh, from peoples who were, you know, we've got to remember, colonized uh, in the not so recent past. So I think for, for South Asian Muslims and, and, and people from know uh non-white backgrounds i i guess it was like wow you know not only they converted but look how knowledgeable they are you know look look at the scholarly authority that they command 
you know look how much how many years they've spent studying our religion so you know it it, it was both a source of kind of um in a sense speaks to a certain amount of psychological inferiority but also validation and I guess pride in that somebody people from the West, white indigenous con people have uh, acquired the the religious competency in a way which we most of us haven't been able to, and these people have become our teachers, and they 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 uh, they can all they can act. They are seen as bridges between the worlds of Islam, the Muslim communities, and the West. So, I mean, there's, a, you know, those are some of the main kind of things going on in terms of how people responded to figures like uh, Hamza Yusuf and Tim Wood. And they still do. You know, they they see there is a, it speaks to that kind of subtle kind of, um, you know, uh, intellectual, emotional kind of reaction to seeing somebody uh, from the dominant culture uh, uh, speak your language you know, understand your religion, explain your, being able to articulate your religion to the rest of the world. Um, and I think it's satisfying, it's emotionally, it kind of, it makes you feel good, I guess. And I, I think as well, and, and this is not a flipping point, you know, for us here in the UK, when we hear the American accent, it makes a difference as well, I tell you, because uh, we, we, we have this, we, we, we were doing this from the 19, from the early 90s, we were bringing the American speakers, we had uh, you know, before that we had Hamza Yusuf, we had Imam Saraj Bohaj, who's still a very popular uh, speaker here. We had Dr. Jamal Badawi and so on, you know. So the, the Brits really did like to bring over their American cousins quite often. And that, I think, it kind of made them feel good. And so this next question might seem a little cliche, but this idea of, you know, people like Hamza Yusuf, people see him as like a walking encyclopedia and that's really attractive on one level. But, you know, in 2018 now, so like what are some ways you see new media shaping the direction of British Islamic activism and how is that, you know, different from the kinds of context you look at in the 1990s? So like what, what, what's the sort of future of things looking like from your perspective? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Uh, and and um, I only really, um, I deliberately didn't uh, spend too much time on that uh, in, in this book. Uh, I mean, I, the last chapter is, um, the penultimate chapter is uh, contemporary Islamic activism, where I just really touch on uh, the answer to your question, which is how the the transformation of the activism, the activism of the 1990s to to the 2000s and, and bringing it up to date. Uh, and what I've done prior to that is to explain the the, the dynamics of social change that take that enabled, if you like, or uh, yeah, brought us to where we are today in terms of the social media. Yeah, well, social media is 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 obviously um, something that impacts all of our lives, but uh, before that, we we have to remember that uh, the, the the British Muslim communities were in a state of transition, as all communities are, with with growing populations, um, populations that were uh, certainly second generation. We had a, a a large cohort that was university educated, and these people went on to then uh, fine tune certain aspects of the existing activist. Uh, infrastructure, but also people who had become a delusion, uh, disillusion, should I say, from the Sufi Salafi paradigms that they had uh, encountered in the 1990s and started becoming critical and had either left those groups or actually reinvented uh, Islamic activism in their own terms. And we can't forget also the massive um, the effects of uh, the 9/11 attacks here in the UK. We you know, we, we, we experienced a backlash from uh, the, the public, in the way public per, uh, perceived, the white public uh, population and the non-Muslims uh, kind of uh, reacted to, 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 the, to, the, to that, to that uh, tragic event. Uh, we, you know, we, 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 had, we, we, we felt the fallout here as well. Um, but not only that, we ourselves experienced a, a, a very um, a major uh, kind of... Uh, trauma through the the attack since uh july 2005 and so um i guess 9 11 marked the beginning of this uh the new you know this war on terror era that we have and and how it kind of um reformulated the relationship between western governments and their 
Muslim communities. I mean, I, I know you, it's been arguably more intense in the US, but here in the UK, um, it really did uh, result in a lot of social change and political change. And there was also, you know, legislative, can't even say it, legal change uh, in terms of legislation uh, that was enacted uh, certainly after the 2005 attacks. So, you know, um, that kind of in in addition to the emergence of um, uh, ICT technologies and the availability, the the pervasiveness, really, I guess, of of, of Facebook, uh, Twitter, and and so on, uh, YouTube, and and all of that, and and so yeah, I mean, that's um, what it, in 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 essence, it re reconfigured the relationships between uh, religious authorities and Muslim communities. In a sense, it bypassed um, traditional forms of uh, religious scholarship, religious leadership. I mean, I've argued before that uh, there was a disconnect anyway between um, the local mo the mosques that we had and the Muslim communities in that, you know, young people felt alienated from the mosques. They weren't, you know, turned off by their experiences. Uh, and hence, this is one of the reasons why the activist groups were able to attract them. But also, um, even uh, if you like, existing Islamic organizations now were could be bypassed by the self-styled religious entrepreneurs that appeared on YouTube. You know, the people who developed a following on Twitter and so on. I mean, this is where we are today. And so, even um, well-known, uh, highly respected individuals like. Um, uh, Hamza Yusuf, uh, uh, Abdul Hakim, and so on, uh, have now been displaced by a newer generation of younger, uh, self-styled, uh, uh, so-called religious leaders, uh, religious scholars, or, or speakers, and that's uh, it, it's it's co it's caused you know a number of interesting tensions, and uh, there have been consequences. So yes, you have um, the well-established uh, people, players, and scholars who are reaching out to their audiences through social media, but they they themselves now have to compete with younger people who do not necessarily have the religious credentials, um, and and I guess that's just just an, a kind of effect of uh, the the where we are now in terms of digital the availability of digital technologies and the fact that pretty much anybody can you know. Um, you know, appear in front of a camera um, and, and upload uh, content and, uh, you know, uh, if they say something uh, of interest or perhaps uh, contro create controversy, that then that, you know, is, is, is likely to um, help them develop a profile which, which they then will cultivate and, uh, you know, it's quite, it's quite, um, it's in terms of academically, it's very interesting to, 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 uh, to observe and explore these developments, but uh, it has had repercussions within Muslim communities very much in that expertise has been sometimes, um, if, if you like, um, underappreciated by people who are qualified to be speaking about and counseling people on certain issues. Um, you know, this is a complaint, an internal complaint within Muslim communities. People will say, oh, look, you know, rather than go to a qualified person, they will they will look up their favorite speaker on YouTube. And so, you know, that's where we are today. And I don't spend too much time talking about that in the book, because um, this is a these are themes which I've um, explored with a with a colleague of mine in a, in a forthcoming book, which um, I might mention later on. Yeah. And so if I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about your future projects, but if I could ask one, one last question on this notion of expertise and pedagogy and methodology. Have you had a chance to use your book in teaching contexts? And if so, how would you, or in, in either case, how would you suggest educators employ your book in classroom contexts? Uh, well, I myself haven't had the, uh, the opportunity to uh, use my own book as teaching material because at, at the moment, um, I, uh, I actually have a, a research role. I'm not teaching at the moment, but I do know um, Colleagues have uh, started to uh, incorporate uh, the the text as part of their studies on Islam in Britain, uh, religious studies, and um, I, I guess um, 
it is being used I, from the feedback that I've got uh, from around the world. It, people are using the book as uh, as a text on uh, underst uh, understanding um, religious identity and religion amongst uh, Muslims in Britain. So and 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 uh, religion, sorry, Islam in in Europe, uh, I guess. So those um, those types of courses, I guess, it's 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 becoming. I'm 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 very um, grateful to see it's, it is being used and and. I know it's being taught uh, at university level. I mean, the, the book itself actually, um, it's had, um, I try to uh, engage different audiences, reading audiences with the book. Um, so yes, uh, academics, but also um, uh, people in the media. I've had a look, quite a, a lot of coverage uh, in, in the mainstream media and journalists, uh, and I've, I've done a few programs. Uh, recently, I did a program for the BBC World on on jihad and the uh, the beginnings of uh, the jihad movement here in the UK, uh, and and so on. So um, that's been great. And um, politicians as well, uh, policymakers have taken an interest. Uh, some senior politicians here in the UK told me that they read the book and they found it uh, quite useful in uh, kind of understanding and getting a sense of the mapping of the uh, the map the of British Islam, I guess. And I guess the fourth audience is Muslim communities themselves. People have said, you know, they've read the book and they've agreed or disagreed. And, but largely it's been uh, positive and people have said, you know, it's, it's really good that somebody has actually uh, told the story, if you like. So I'm grateful for that. Well, cool. That's, that's really exciting to hear that you're getting positive feedback from different kinds of audiences. And certainly as I was reading the book, that was one of the things that struck out to me was how how many different kinds of interested readers, you know, might want to pick up this book. And so Sadiq, thank you so much for your time and letting us interview you. And so if we could ask you a final question, what, what kinds of current or future projects are you working on, whether they're related to the book or not? Sure. Yeah. So uh, as I just um, hinted, um, a few people have said to me, "Well, you know, Sadiq, it's great you've, uh, you've you've done this, but you haven't really said that much about where we are today. And um, are you going to be writing anything about that?" And yes, I said yes. <laughs> I've been fortunate to, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, co-author a new book with the person I mentioned actually, who's one of my um, the, 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 whose book I uh, was influenced by, uh, Philip Lewis, you know, the author of Islamic Britain. He actually approached me to write um, a book with him on the state of the contemporary state of Islam in Britain. And so the book is um, pleased to be sharing with you the news that it will be out in June uh, with Edinburgh University Press. It's called British Muslims, New Directions in Islamic Thought creativity and activism so it's it's kind of like a, a follow-on uh to the sufi salafis islamists and it's also it's like an update uh from for philip's book which was uh, young british and muslim which was uh, published about 10 years ago so we both worked together we on this and uh we've um yeah, basically brought the story right up to date in terms of what are the pressing, what we feel are the pressing issues that are being discussed by Muslims in Britain today, and uh, really our primary audience actually is uh, people outside of the Muslim community. So again, we're looking at you know um, academics, teachers, people who work with Muslim communities, social workers, youth workers, the police, and so on, to really um, uh, provide a another kind of an accurate and uh, an authoritative analysis of uh, the state of Islam in Britain today. And the reason I say that is because, unfortunately, over the last 10 years, we've had many um, uh, journalistic uh, attempts, and, and uh, which, a lot, which many have been polemic, uh, really, around uh, the, the Muslim uh, population in the UK. Uh, unfortunately, we've, we've had a, a number of uh, uh, very kind of well-read kind of uh, bestsellers, I guess, uh, written by people from the Muslim communities as well, people who uh, have been involved, some of, some of them have been involved in the groups that I've discussed, but they've given a very personal, um, provocative, and arguably unrepresentative interpretation of 
what actually happens in Muslim communities. So that's why we felt, you know, it was important to to provide an academic uh, kind of counterpoint, if you like. Um, I think that's really important. I know in America you have the same problem as well. It's, uh, people who are crawling out of the woodwork, so to speak, who are former Muslims or ex-radical Muslims and so on. So you you, you know what I mean. Um, we have that problem here in the UK. And so I think it's really important that academics continue to produce, uh, you know, um, uh, authoritative, rigorous pieces of scholarship that can uh, provide a balanced picture to what is going on. So that's what, well, what, one of the books I've got coming out. I also have a, a co-edited volume with my colleague, um, Professor Tahir Abbas, which is uh, an international comparative of youth activism of, uh, across the world. So that's coming out with um, Santa Cruz University Press uh, towards the end of the year. And uh, finally, I, I've just finished uh, working on researching for a project here at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies, where I work with my uh, colleague, Professor Mark Halstead, which uh, looks at um, the future of Muslims in Europe. And we're doing a, uh, we've done a four study uh, uh, comparison um, between Marseille, Brussels, Rotterdam, and the city of Bradford. So, yeah, quite busy. I've been quite busy recently. Well, that's exciting to hear about these projects. And thank you again so much for sharing your time with us and talking about your book. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. That was my interview with Dr. Sadiq Hamid, the author of Sufis, Salafis, and Islamists, The Contested Grounds of British Islamic Activism, published by I.B. Taurus in 2016. Thanks for listening.